Hour number two of Canuck Central. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. In case you missed hour number one, a big conversation around Bo Horvat, his season, where the strides were made, and what is that next contract going to look like for the Canucks captain? And will it be with the Vancouver Canucks? You can check that out, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, in case you missed it. Subscribe and leave a review. That way you never miss any of our exclusive interviews, sometimes interesting conversations, and exclusive content here on Canuck Central. Always interesting, Dan. Always? For some reason or another. (laughs) Even train wrecks can be interesting. Yes, even when we're debating the best kind of pasta dish. Yes, uh, these these are all very important conversations here on Canuck Central. Uh, All right, so Bo Horvat's out of the lineup. Besser comes in. Matthew Highmore is back as well to help yep. out in the bottom six. Those are a couple of big additions for this team. But uh, the big thing here, Sat, is uh, Elias Pettersson tonight moving back to center and seeing how much more of the load he can carry. He's got to step up big. And, na- I mean, as much as the Horvat injury hurts, and it does hurt in a big way, especially with the hot, hot streak that he's been on, Pedersen can fill in playing the middle. Getting Besser back. If Besser gets hot, you can at least prov- you can at least make do for the next few games and get past, especially because they didn't have Besser before. And it's going to be interesting to see if Pedersen can really elevate, you know, not because they needed Bo because he was doing it, you know, he's been moving around, he's still been productive. But if he can really carry a line on his own and Besser comes back and gives you something, then maybe that impact of losing Bo won't be felt as much, at least in the short term. Let's uh, bring in our next guest. He is Don Taylor, Donnie and Dolly, 10 to noon on Check TV, Monday through Friday. Donnie, it's, uh, I, I don't know, like I know I'm the new guy around here, relatively. Um, well, definitely the new guy around here. But it just feels like not only are the Canucks get hit with the injury bug quite badly, but it seems to hit them at the worst possible times all the time. Am I wrong on that? Well, yeah, you could go back in history, like even, um, uh, which I tend to do a lot, but 82 when their captain, Kevin McCarthy, wasn't around, and um, they ended up going to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Yeah, it just seems that if if there's uh, luck to be had, it's always bad, or however that saying goes, uh, with the Canucks, and I don't don't think you're, you're wrong there, but it's been pretty impressive what they've been able to do, but... Now, you know, with Bo Horvat out, and I know Besser's coming back, and they're lucky to have Pedersen to move into the middle, but yet yet another challenge. But just, I don't think, you, you given history, Canuck fans can be all that surprised with the bad luck. Well, you know, this team has been criticized fairly as well for the bad start they had, the bad starts they've had earlier in games. But the way they're battling late down the stretch here and how well they've played and how they're overcoming all these injuries... Is it changing your assessment of the maturity of this team? Can you make the argument that they are maturing later into the season, or are they just getting hot at the right time? You think? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think there's there's definitely some there's definitely a maturity there that maybe we didn't expect, and maybe that has a lot to do. I think it has a lot to do with who the coach is and how they're responding to him. That's nothing against Travis Green. It just seems that this mix is is there and. Their ability to come through in adversity uh, has been really impressive, and maybe it does speak to the growth of this team and maybe what we can expect for next season. Uh, we'll see what happens the rest of this season. But, yeah, that seems to be something that wasn't there before. Other than the bad starts, it's pretty impressive. It's uh, Canuck Central. We're live at uh, Rogers Arena. Don Taylor joining us uh, here on uh, on the show as he does every Monday. How do you look back on, on Bo's season, Donnie? I mean, obviously the slow start, but was scoring as well as anybody in the league over the last couple of weeks. Well, I think it's it's um, it's commendable in that he had the January dip with, with COVID, and he came back and he wasn't himself, and the stats weren't there. Uh, he was receiving some criticism, and we just finished talking about maturity. I think he showed a lot of maturity, in throwing that adversity aside and having one of the, if not, well, I wouldn't say the best stretch, the best stretch would have been in the be- of the bubble, but arguably the best regular season stretch he's ever had, you know, despite the fact that he was facing some pretty big adversity with COVID, with the criticism, 
with a lack of production not that long ago, and he ends up with 31 goals. So, uh, you know, a, a big, uh, you know, a, B-plus A for, for Bo so far this season. Now, when it comes to what contract he's going to get and any conversations the team have with him this offseason, I mean, isn't that one of the more fascinating ones? Because the Miller one, we all kind of know it's going to be tough to num- you know nail down, and ultimately we'll see where that one goes. But the Horvat one, we haven't spent as much time thinking about. How complicated do you think it's going to be to figure out a contract extension for Bo for Horvat here? Well, because what what you just said there, said that having both players, you know, come up at the same time, and we're talking about a guy who, and I don't know what's going to happen next season. I'm going to guess, given recent history, JT Miller's going to be pretty good, pushing 100 points. Maybe he gets there. I don't know. And then you've got Bo Horvat. I get, we just talked about him having arguably the best regular season stretch of his career. He's the captain. He, he's He's very good in the face-off circle, solid in the face-off circle, does a lot for the team. I'm wondering if they're able to keep both. Everybody assumes that it's it's Besser that's going to go. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And maybe it's Besser staying and one of those two going. I, I think it's going to be really tough to keep both those guys. It really is. And, um, you know, Besser comes uh, back into the lineup here, Donnie, at um – Feels like a big spot here for Besser. I know he's probably not at 100%, but they're going to need him to get some production out of these last few games if they're going to keep the playoff hopes alive. Yeah, and, and if uh, the talk will, and, and maybe we'll see the talk away of him of him leaving if he does do something there. But yeah, you guys just talked about Patterson moving to the middle. It's kind of you know everybody talked about the Canucks' lack of depth, and yet it it's kind of impressive that they can take the player who was supposed to be their number one center and move him from wing to center. That's pre- that, that's pretty impressive. As for Besser, yeah, a little bit of heat on him. He's, he's not having a great season. He does have 19 goals. We all know about his contract uh, uh, status. So pressure on him from a team point of view. They're still in the playoff hunt. And from a personal point of view, and maybe a little bit of redemption. I think people expected more from him as well. We'll see if there's some fire in his belly up. Uh, these next two weeks. Yeah, it, it will be. And, you know, when I look at the back end, however, too, that's the one positive here is that they do have a healthy back end. If you were missing one of your top four defensemen, that may have been a harder hole to kind of cover here. And allowing guys like Hunt to remain on the third pair, allowing Dermott to play on that third pair role, keeps them from getting exposed. And having those guys healthy, I do believe, has also kind of helped this team have some stability despite those injuries up front recently. And I think we have to give those guys a lot of credit on the back end. Yeah, and, and, and no question about it. And I think a pretty good story this year, you, you sat too, when you talk about the back end, is players, and Dermott hasn't been there that long, but you mentioned... Uh, Hunt, uh, Burroughs. There's been that Pullman. I don't think has been what, what people thought he might be. Uh, I remember the preseason when people thought he was looking looking pretty good. But there there have been, there has been that emergence of of players like like uh, Hunt and, and Burroughs. That that's been a real positive. But uh, yeah, you know when they have their top four, it's pretty good. Not the best in the league by any chance, but it's, at least they've got that down the stretch. Don Taylor joining us. Uh... As far as Elias Pettersson goes, Donnie, I mean, um, his second half has been incredible. You know, I've I've thrown out the number a few times, but since the All-Star break, he's on a 110-point scoring pace, if you were to extrapolate that over 82. Maybe a little bit, uh, you know, having fun with numbers, but it's just the reality that this is a player that we weren't seeing earlier in the season, and I guess the question is, is this the best version of Elias Pettersson we've ever seen, or are we still trying to get back to that guy we saw in the bubble uh, almost winning a series against Vegas? Yeah, and then the, the back-to-back 66-point player. I, the only difference is, and I don't know how much you've talked about it, but um, I just can't figure out why it seems he's better on the wing, at least at this stage, Right. I mean, early on, obviously, he was. He just seemed as obvious. He was a center iceman. He saw the game well. But I, I'm just, and, and I know we, who he's been playing with, two pretty good centers. I get all that. But he's just been really good on the wing. And I just look at him and I wonder, like, why? His game doesn't seem to be suited to the wing, but it's really, really worked for him. Now he goes back to center, 
and, and, and like every aspect of this Canucks season, it's yet something else that's going to be really, really interesting. You can say what you want about the Canucks season, disappointing, they should have done better, blah, 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 whatever. It's been it, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, so interesting. And this is another interesting thing. I'm interesting to, saw, to see how Pedersen is going to do moving back to center where I thought he'd be a fixture until he moved to wing where he kind of looked better, and I really don't know why. It's just so interesting this season. Yeah, it really is, and I, I I believe that he's going to be fine playing down the middle because when he's feeling the game, I, I think it's it's not going to really matter, and he'll still bring yeah. it in a big way. Now, the, the player that I that we talked about that's taken such a big step late in the season is Vasily Podkolzin, and he finds himself now in the first power play unit, and I, and I believe that says a lot. The fact that he's replacing Bo in the short term in that bumper spot because he's also a left hand shot has a good shot, and it still sets up that you know one two play from JT. Uh, to, for that pop out pass to Bo Horvat's spot, but what does that say about Podkolzin? That you know, with Bo Horvat going out, that the coach is tagging him to play uh, in that spot, and that he's getting a chance with JT Miller right now. Well, I think it says a whole lot. You talk about that bumper spot, you know, uh, you know, near the front of the net. And mm-hmm. when I watch Vasily Podkolzin, and may- maybe this isn't fair, but I just think of what you know we all thought Jake Vertanen was going to be. And 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 uh, not that I don't want to make this about Jake, and I know there are a lot of things going on in his life. I get all that, but just uh, you watch you watch Vasily, and you watch him drive to the net. You watch him on that in that bumper spot. You watch him in front of the net. He's very courageous. He uses his size. He uses his strength. And this is in his first year, and he, he he's just he's very much aware that he's got this ability to drive to the net. To, to be a strong presence in, in the dirty areas. And I just, I just think he's really, really special that way. And I think he, he, his confidence is growing as he's getting, and obviously it is, his confidence is growing when, he gets, when there's more production, especially in front of the net. That seems to be his area. He owns it, and it's really, really impressive to watch during these important games. The really uh, interesting part of all these players being out and who's getting onto the top power play unit? But Connor Garland hasn't gotten a sniff of that top power play. Um, do, you, do you think that says something about they, the way they feel about Garland, or is it a size thing? Why don't you think Connor Garland, who's been one of their better five-on-five scorers, doesn't get a chance on the top unit? Yeah, and, and I, I, I do wonder about that. I'm, it must be a size thing. The thing that I don't get about Connor Garland is that at the beginning of the year he was pushing towards the front of the net way more than he is now. Uh, and I always remember that, that there was a game early in the season where it was a really strange look where he had, uh, he had the right hand of uh, his stick uh, was on the ground and his right hand was almost yeah. at, at the heel. I don't know if you remember that. And that happened a couple of times. It was right in front of the net. And we just haven't seen that. And I, I'm not so sure if that speaks to health. Did he get hit really hard that I can't remember? I'm not really sure, but it's kind of a strange look that he doesn't get he doesn't get that chance on that first unit power play where there's all these players that are hurt, and it must be something where they just don't believe in him because of his size, and yet we saw that a little bit earlier, much to our surprise. So obviously they, they, they don't have confidence in him that way, but I know the production hasn't been there that they'd like to – like to see, I love watching him play, but obviously the coaches don't feel the same way. No, and you know, and maybe part of it too is because at least what it seemed like on power play too that Garland's going to play net front, which I kind of you know does make sense because of you know how he can excel there. Although he's been on the perimeter a lot on five on five as well, but it's yeah. also the play of Alex Chase on Donnie. I mean, the guy has ten points in his last seven games, and he has a couple goals on the power play, a couple assists on the power play as well. He's done his job in that net front role, and as much as a lot of fans are now starting to give him his credit, and you know they're they're acknowledging you know how he's helpful helping things out I still see people mentioning stuff like well he's taking away opportunities from other guys and they could have kept Gadjevich or McEwen but is that not diminishing really what he's doing for 750k and how big he's coming up for this team when they've had so many injuries late in the season I can understand like, we were all criticizing that early on like you know yeah. look at McEwen and, and you know uh, at the very least he's you know, providing uh, 
somewhat of a menacing presence for the Flyers, Gadjevich with his potential and size of all, and all that. You talk about things we didn't see coming. I didn't see this coming with Chase Lone. He looks really good. He fit into the top six. I didn't see that. I, again, during an important time of year. I think the one thing with him that I've seen all along is that he's strong. He's a strong he, – He's. I'm not saying he's fast or anything like that or he's particularly strong skater, but he's strong on his feet. He's hard to bump off the puck, which is why he's so good in front of the net, and he's got a pretty good shot. So we've seen that lately. Um, but I didn't see this type of production. Absolutely no way. And I certainly didn't see his head coach ever saying, this guy could be a player of the week, a star of the week, which Bruce Brudeau <laughs> did last week. I don't know if you guys remember that. Like, what? And then I looked at, back at the stats, and I go, man, he's right. He's looked good, and his stats are there. I didn't see that at all. And so you kind of wonder, you know, maybe the, will, the, will the Canucks bring him back? And I think that has a lot, you know, might have a lot to do with what they do with Besser. But hey, at least you can ask the question now. I never thought for a second I'd be asking that question, say, two, three months ago. You know what? It's it's a win for the seasoned vet crew, right? Because uh, Chase on Luke Shen, Brad Hunt, they've all been positive values for this Canucks team, Donnie. I think maybe old guys just don't get a good enough rep around the league anymore. Everybody wants you know the young twenty somethings on their team. Well, you know, I, I like my old guys there. <laughs> I think you know what? I, I, I just think I think Bruce Boudreaux likes those those types of players. I think he loves guys who who have, who have scrapped. Even though Luke Shen was a high draft pick. But it really scrapped during their careers, or, yeah. or like Burroughs, they've spent a whole lot of time in the minors. You know why he likes that? Because that's what he was, yeah, and I, and I think he has a soft spot in his heart for those guys, and they respond to that sort of confidence and knowing that the coach likes likes the types of players they are, likes their career stories, and and they respond respond to that. And I, I don't think that's uncommon with coaches and coaches and GMs. If they see a player that reminds them of the way they are, I think that that, that gives that player a leg up, at least in the short term. Uh, one player that I did want to just bring up with you, too, and you know we talked about him earlier on when he played, and he showed, okay, he's got to adjust to the NHL a little bit, but game by game is getting more and more comfortable. That's Will Lockwood. What are you seeing in his game that you're liking right now? Well, you know what? Like I watch the games lots with my kids, or when we go to the games, and I watch it with my, my two boys, and like lately, or, you know, since he's been inserted into the lineup, like, during his first shift, this has happened two or three times, all of us go, who is, what, what, what was that? Like, it's just like, like, you know, 58, like, it, it, he just sticks out. He's so fast and so willing to hit that, uh, I mean, people talked about him being a replacement for Tyler Mott. I, I definitely see that, and long-term, maybe as good or better than Mott, Again, that's that may be going way too far, but he really stands out just in terms of his speed and his willingness to stick his nose in there. I I really I I see what people see in him. Like he he again, I'm, he's not the second coming of Gretzky. You know, maybe he's Tyler Mott, but he sure stands out. And you know, you'll often see hear people that have watched hockey for a long time say, "Just just do something out there, make me notice you." He does that every time. And so he's he's passed that test for me, and now he has to go from there. But I, I notice him every time he's out on the ice, and so do other people. Donnie, it's uh, it's another must win for the Canucks tonight. Uh, thanks for this today. Anytime, guys. Love it. All the best. Yeah, there he is, Don Taylor, the legend himself. Uh, always fun catching up with Donnie, man. And you know, with Will Lockwood. He he is playing a lot better as the season goes on, and he's not playing a ton of minutes, and it's still somewhat sheltered, but just some of the traits that we, we looked at early on. I mean, we know he can skate, and he's physical, and he knows how to really hit. He has a lot of recklessness in his game, but he had to play a bit smarter. He had to take some better lanes and angles and just process the game a bit faster. And you kind of wondered, okay, how long is, is, is it take, does it take for him to figure that out? And he's adjusted a bit quicker than I thought he would as the season's gone on. Still a long way to go to be a you know, real impactful middle six guy that can do a lot for you. But his kind of progression as the season's gone on late here, I do think is one of the kind of more quiet storylines to, to pay attention to. It's, um, you know, the, the Canucks are looking to find uh, depth on this roster, guys that can provide in a bottom six role and bring you positive value. It's not something they've had on the cheap. In uh, recent years, but Lockwood, 
definitely starting to look the part. And with young players, you know, you don't want to see them making the same mistakes over and over. And you definitely want to see progression. And I think you've seen that with Will Lockwood over uh, over these last number of games. So Elias Pettersson sat. How much is on his shoulders? Donnie made the interesting point of he thinks Pettersson has looked better on the wing than through the middle. Uh, he's certainly scoring a lot lately, and he's been playing a lot of wing ever since Nils Hoaglander went down with the injury. Is it just coincidence that he's found his game while playing on the wing uh, over the last little while. Well, he's been more prolific recently, and he's had a lot of success there with Bo together. But let's not forget his, you know, his hot streak started around the All Star break. Yeah, and he was still playing through the middle of the ice. And he was playing with guys like Hoaglander and Garland, and even some other guys that he was playing with and kind of carrying along. So, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say he's played his most productive hockey and some of his best hockey. Yes, on the wing. But as he started to find his game down the middle, I don't think it was too dissimilar from some of the stuff that we're seeing now. And I don't believe that adjustment going back to the middle is going to really make it all that difficult for him. I believe what we'll see is him adjust just fine. It kind of shows that he's more than capable of doing that. And, you know, it worked out because I think it's easier for Pedersen to adjust to play on the wing and be a playmaker and, and, you know, set up a guy like Bo than it would be for Bo to go and play the wing and, you know, wait to be set up by Pedersen. I think that would cause, you know, probably more adjustment for Bo. And Pedersen adjusted really quickly, and they had a lot of success doing so. But I'm not concerned about Pedersen not being able to carry the load playing down the middle. Against Dallas, I believe we'll see him do just more than fine alongside Garland and Besser. I wonder if this is a uh, line combination that works really well for Brock Besser with Pedersen and Garland. Garland leads the team in primary assists at 5-on-5. We know Pedersen's vision has gotten better as the season's gone on. Um, Besser can kind of just be the trigger man that really saw Bo find his goal scoring over the last Mm -hmm. couple of weeks as Garland and Pedersen seem to be able to find their line mate in great spots for scoring opportunities. Well, Garland did a really good job of kind of being the third guy on that line, and he very much was a third guy with Bo and, and Pedersen. I don't know if it's going to be Garland and Pedersen kind of being the duo and Besser being the third guy now. For that line to have its most success, I do believe it's going to have to come back to Besser and Pedersen regaining some chemistry and being the duo. If they can, then I think Garland's going to fit in really well and do all those other things to tie it together and, and be, good, be a good line mate for those guys. But if Patterson's playmaking can get Besser the puck and Besser gets a couple goals in, I, I think it would be really important here towards the end of the season, not only for Patterson to play strong down the middle and whatever, but to see if those two guys can create some chemistry here and get Besser going offensively because that could also kind of give you an indication of, okay, is that going to be a duo you consider next year? Is that something you look at? Because as much as, you know, Horvat and, and Patterson isn't a long-term fit, Besser and Pedersen could be if both are back on the lineup, back on the team next year. It is Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. Still lots to get to. We'll get more into the game storylines after 6 o'clock as uh, we'll have an extended pregame show, official pregame show starting at 6.30 as it's a 7.30 puck drop tonight here at Rogers Arena. Up next, Shayna Goldman on uh, the best power play quarterbacks in the league. Is Quinn Hughes in that conversation? Plus, is Elias Pettersson still the no-doubt best forward out of the 2017 draft? There might be a couple of other candidates. Talk about that next with Shana Goldman on Canuck Central. Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. Live at Rogers Arena this hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler. Proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. A lot still to get to. Shannon Goldman is going to join us. And sad, it's kind of uh, taking a backseat to all of the uh, other many storylines. But uh, Shana's going to... Talk about her latest piece at Sportsnet, which uh, talks about power play quarterbacks. And obviously, Quinn Hughes is one of the better ones in the league. It's been, I don't know, do we not talk about Quinn Hughes' season enough? Or is it just like kind of expected now that he's 
one of the better defensemen in the league. Normalize not normalizing Quinn Hughes. Yeah. That's what we have to do. Because I think we, we've just gotten so used to him doing all these incredible things. And it's just kind of expected. And he makes it look so effortless. He does. And when he uses – when he's so because he's so efficient in his movements and how easy it looks for him – it comes off as not being all that special. But then if you kind of really catch yourself watching what he just did, you would appreciate how special that is. And as much as, you know, we talk about him needing a better shot on the power play and, you know, sometimes the pass is on perfect. And I think that's more than, I think more of that, that is more about us just maybe seeing the flaws more and letting those things kind of cloud the judgment to some degree. Because... You go through all the the uh, the metrics, and Shana's going to you know describe Quinn Hughes's value really well. And there's a lot of things he does as well or better than anybody in the NHL. And there's quite a few amazing defensemen in the league right now. Uh, joining us now, you see her work at uh, Sportsnet.ca and also at the Athletic. It is Shana Goldman, one of our favorites here on Canuck Central. Thanks for this, Shana. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for making time as always. Uh, we're looking at your your latest over at Sportsnet.ca, talking about the power play quarterbacks around the league, and they're not all the same. There's different ways to do it, but uh, what makes Quinn Hughes stand out amongst uh, the better power play quarterbacks in the league? So above all else, what I noticed with him was his passing um, among so. For this, I really lowered it down to power play one quarterbacks. I thought that was only fair if they played, you know, upwards of 50% of the available minutes and primarily played with power play one um, just to keep the playing field a bit more even. You know, it's tougher when you have on-the-fly shifts versus, you know, going out at the dot. And uh, Quinn Hughes, among those defensemen, and really among most defensemen in any power play situation, is one of the most frequent passers in the offensive zone. Um, that was, you know, his standout right there was his passing rate and uh, completion rate too. You know, he was, he can thread the needle from the point and set his teammates up. And, you know, it was both uh, volume and it was quality passing. Well, and the fact that you're right, he, how, how efficient he is. I mean, you had the number at 92% efficiency on his passing. And when you consider how many of those diagonal East-West passes he makes that are setting up those really good one-time opportunities, how good is that in context? Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, there's, there's a skill to getting pucks through traffic and, mm-hmm. you know, finding time and space and creating those passing lanes yourself. And that's something that Quinn Hughes can do from the point. You know, he really can direct play. And I don't think sometimes quarterbacks get the credit that they should. I think the Victor Hedmans of the world do and the John Carlsons. But a player like Quinn Hughes is still directing traffic, even if he's doing it in almost like a more quietly effective way, I think, compared to some other power play one quarterbacks around the league. But, um, no, he's he's able to get the puck through traffic. And, you know, to an extent you can look at it and think, well, if he's passing more than anybody else, maybe him completing those passes more than anybody else isn't particularly shocking because his, you know, the rates are going to be up no matter what if you have that many attempts. But the fact that he's actually completing those passes, you know, at a higher clip than some of the others around the league, it's showing that it's not just that he's, you know, having those successful passes because he's attempting more than anybody else as well. I, th- I think the one contrast, and, and Bruce Boudreau mentioned this uh, just last week, where he thinks Quinn can maybe score a little bit more, and whether that's on the power play or in other game situations, I guess is is up for debate. But uh, the two that I think of are, are Kale McCarr and, and obviously Roman Yossi that score a ton on the power play as well. It can, can having a point shot really add another dimension to to a point to a, to a power play that really helps? Absolutely. Anytime that you can have more shots from any area of the ice, it's a good thing. And the more, you know, danger points that you can have, the better. If you have a quarterback that could be shooting from the center, from either point, you know, the left or the right, that's a benefit right there. Even if those pucks aren't always, you know, ultimately what is the goal, if they get tipped or deflected in front, those are some of the most challenging shots to defend against. And, you know, from the point you can see a lot of uh, defenders are attempting one-timers. That's a great shot to have because, you can force that uh, quick puck mm-hmm. movement and fire quickly so, you know, a goalie can't react. And also, when you're on the power play, you have multiple players in formation in front of the blue paint. You have defenders, you know, in front in front as well. So they're creating traffic. So ideally, that shot has a better chance of getting through, even if it ricochets off other players, because you're taking away a goalie's eyes. 
you know, from shooting back there. So anytime that you have multiple dimensions, it's harder to defend against because you can't predict exactly where that shot's going to come from. Yeah, and one of the things that you mentioned, too, in the article was also Eric Carlson and how he gets so many, a high number of his shot from that, shots from that slot area. And it's not that he can't shoot it from the point. That's not really the strength of his game. So if I'm looking at, say, Quinn Hughes and, say, him developing his game and becoming more of a threat, could he be more of a shooting threat if he can just get shots from the slot more, even though he doesn't have a great release on his, on his shot? Yeah, for Eric Carlson, you know, he's such a smooth skater. He's such a smart player. He finds openings. He creates them for himself. And he can get to the quality areas of the ice, even if he's not just standing back and shooting. That's what they have Brent Burns for more than Carlson and, you know, power play and even strength situations, really. So that's not a bad person to model your game after. If Quinn Hughes isn't going to be known for a bomb of a shot from the point, and that's, you know, not for everyone. There's different playing styles around the league, and they work for different players then, yeah, maybe if he sees more openings, he can jump up in the play. And the more threats that Vancouver has on that power play, the better opportunity he'll have to do it because, you know, penalty killers are going to feel the pressure to take away time and space from JT Miller or from Elias Pettersson or from Brock Besser. Um, So if a player like Quinn Hughes can kind of slip through the cracks, even though he really should be considered one of those threats as well, but maybe the expectation isn't that he's going to shoot. So if he has that opportunity and can find that lane, he could definitely try to drive to the quality areas a bit more. We had you on a uh, on a previous show talking about pe- the penalty kill and and how mm-hmm. power kills are really becoming more more modern and well since that conversation the Canucks have handed over the reins to Brad Shaw their one of their assistant coaches to uh, implement uh, his penalty kill style and it is more of a power kill we've seen Quinn Hughes we've seen Elias Pettersson work on the power penalty kill and the Canucks lo and behold have been uh, one of the better penalty kills over the last number of weeks in the NHL why is it just that uh, why do you think skilled players work on the penalty kill Shana I think teams get into a habit of just being too one-dimensional and they're thinking about being a defensive shell instead of being proactive while they're shorthanded. There's no reason why you have to endure a penalty and stand there and take shots against and try to dive in front of them when, you know, there's so many players around the league that are capable of making plays to force turnovers and push play out of the zone. That's the best way to protect your goaltender isn't to get in, you know, get in front of them and create traffic in front of them and, dive in front of shots that's reactionary at the end of the day like if you're blocking a shot you're reacting to that shot happening if you can do something to stop that shot from happening altogether before the player goes to shoot you're doing something right so it's just thinking about it a little bit differently and thinking how you can push play out and find those trigger points to you know get play out of your own zone instead of just trying to mitigate the damage while you're standing in place. You know, it's a, it's a stronger approach, I think, with some more risk, sure, but the reward, you know, is right there. If you can get playing to the offensive zone and possess the puck, mm-hmm. even if you're not creating shorthanded chances, if you can possess the puck a little bit more and tick time off the clock, you're doing something right. And also, if you have that type of power kill that has the opportunity to jump those passing lanes, create opportunities, and really, you know, pressure uh, the power play, how much does that also kind of create doubt for the, the players on the power play and how careful they have to be and how that may kind of stunt what they do on the power play, just knowing that you have a PK that's more than a threat to kill penalties? Yeah, absolutely. If you're thinking that, you know, you're going to try to take the player out and, you know, you can move the puck differently, you're going to go along with your business and go through all these different power play drills that you probably go through in practice and in game settings all the time. If you have to think twice about it, you might hesitate, you know, and that right there might force you to bobble a puck or, you know, a player can see that opportunity to jump up in the play. It keeps you on your toes. And, you know, for the skilled players that are on the penalty kill, they understand those power play formations better than most because they're usually the players who are also playing them, you know, when their team's on the advantage. So they can kind of find the holes and find the gaps and ways to exploit that because they have a better idea of what players are going to do and try to anticipate that. So anytime that you can't play to your strengths and try to just dominate play, even though you have a player advantage and you have to think twice, you know, you're, you have some seeds of doubt in your penalty uh, in your power play, the penalty kill is doing something right. Brad Shaw is really like the the godfather of this uh, mantra, isn't he? And uh, it's surprising it took so long for the Canucks to to hand over the penalty kill reins to him. 
Yeah, it, it was a little out of a choice. And, you know, I'm an outsider looking at this, and I was surprised at first, too, knowing some of their penalty kill struggles. Uh, he did mm-hmm. such great work in Columbus. And that, that penalty kill, we saw it really in action, you know, absolutely shining at a national level against the Lightning. So if you can build a penalty kill and don't have that same skill strength that your opponent does, and they're still shutting down some of the best players in the league's, Whoever is running that unit, you're probably going to want to try on your own team as well. Yeah, no question about that. And I know that, you know, the analytics department here has, you know, always gives reports to the coaching staff. And given how Bradshaw, and I know you've outlined this, and I know Allison Lucan as well, about how analytically driven Bradshaw was and how he worked with the analytics department. And, of course, we know Rachel Dory has talked about the, par- uh, you know, the power kill stuff in the past as well. So would it surprise you at all if, you know, Bradshaw is working closely here with the analytics department and, and is really, you know, really does listen and, and really does look for those advantages anyway he can? No, it definitely wouldn't surprise me at all. I would expect, you know, based on Allison Lucan's reporting on the puck touch sheet that he keeps, that there's something of that variety here as well. And he's getting that information, like maybe trying to figure out where, if you know a team's power play is, you know, incoming, you might know where they enter the zone more often. Maybe it's on the left side 70% of the time, so you know to pressure that. Or maybe you know that they have a tendency for a certain type of puck movement. Those are the kind of numbers I would expect a penalty kill to scout you know, to best exploit them. And I think of, you know, around the league, if you look at coaches, he seems like one of the more innovative coaches who's actually looking at that kind of information. So uh, one little curveball I, I wanted to throw at you. Uh, here tonight, obviously, uh, Jason Robertson and the Stars are in town. I know in uh, one of your pieces over at Sportsnet talking about the breakout players of this season, you mentioned Rob Thomas. Uh, there, there was a long time, especially here in Vancouver, that we just – uh, all felt Elias Pettersson was by far and away the best forward of the 2017 draft. Has has uh, have Rob Thomas and Jason Robertson kind of closed that gap? That's a tough one. Um, it's so it's so hard to say, but yeah, I think Jason Robertson is such a talent. And last year, you could see it as well. I know some only picked up you know picked up on his team at the end of the year, and it didn't look like the Calder was as close as it should have been when you know Kirill Kaprizov and Jason Robertson had a legitimate race and. You can make the argument for either, even though one player had a little bit more of the flashier goals in Minnesota, and not a knock on Kaprizov's game. I think he's fantastic, mm-hmm. too. But you can't overlook what Robertson did last year. And now you look at the pivotal role he's playing on that Dallas top line. He's incredible. And Robert Thomas, too, that, that's such a skilled player, and he earned a lot more ice time this year, and he's running with the opportunity, you know, uh, he he's such a great passer. He's one of the best in the league. Um, that's something I'm working on now, actually, for this week at Sportsnet is who are the best passers in the league, and you know he's right up there. So those two players definitely are the standouts right now from that draft. And I think Elias Patterson, you know, it was obviously a tough start for him to the year, and he's finding his footing again. But I think you know he'll be just fine and can be in contention with those players in the long run. But it's a good thing when you're looking at it, going look at these standouts, and you know. Maybe some need to rethink some of their drafting strategies to look to find those gems like Jason Robertson. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, as far as Elias Pettersson is concerned, it's really, you know, a tale of two seasons for him. I mean, he struggled so much earlier in the first 41 games coming off the injury, and he was really a shell of his former self. And then the second half of the year, he's really exploded in two-way values here, too. And I know you and Dom decision made the NHL player value cards for the Athletic, and you have the Canucks ones up there as well. And no surprise, the two players leading the Canucks and, and you know, goals above expected and all that is... Um, uh, JT Miller and Elias Patterson. How would you assess his season, and you know how much better he can be if he is able to take a step beyond this next season? So for Elias Patterson, I think that you know we need to look a lot closer at the second half of the season and what's encouraging. Obviously, whatever was plaguing him in the first season, you can't just simply throw away. You know that was mm-hmm. part of his year. Um, but there's there was so much going on in Vancouver earlier this season too that it's it's so tough to look at and you know just pinpoint him as the only player who was struggling you know it was a team wide thing before the coaching changes you know so you can see a boost in confidence and I think that's something that some you know sometimes we kind of throw away too much like just having that confidence back in your game is such a game changer like if you can feel that you can play to your strengths every single night out there, then, you know, that's huge for you right there. You, you'll be more willing to take risks and, you know, try play that you think that you can execute if you're confident in your game. So I think that right there alone is huge for him. But, 
you know, the two-way play that he's showing that he can he can do has he, that he's shown before this season and now in the second half of this season is obviously what I think everyone hopes he builds on next year. And I think he's on the right path to doing so. And uh, finally, uh, we've talked a lot about Bo Horvat today because, uh, you know, a season is done with, with the injury, unfortunately, but does reach a career high with 31 goals. I, I guess sometimes it's, it's hard to separate, you know, uh, how much is, is maybe uh, boosted by a, an increase in, in shooting percentage, which is, is hard to predict and hard to repeat, and how much is, is an actual step. And curious if you think Bo Horvat has taken a step this season. He has. Um, if you look below the surface for him, he's increased his shooting slightly and he is connecting on goal a bit more. So, you know, there's something to his shot accuracy right there. If he can get it through traffic a bit better or improve his shot location. And if you look by expected goal rate, uh, at it, so this is for all situations in particular, but if you look at his expected goal rate, it kind of helps give you an idea of his shot location is improving as well. So, from a quantity and a quality department, you know, he's taken a step forward from last year. So that does bode well for him. The, you know, the higher shooting percentage is a little bit of a red flag, but it's not spiked so high. It's not like he's shooting 22% right now that you know it's going to drop off. It's, you know, it's a slight increase. It is something to, you know, look at moving forward. And if his goal scoring doesn't reach the heights of this season and it does, you know, go back to his average, which you should expect, you know, it's not going to be a major drop-off because it's not, you know, some skyrocketed number that is so unsustainable. Uh, Shana, we always appreciate your insights. Really enjoyed this chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, there is uh, Shana Goldman uh, with uh, yeah. a lot of fantastic insights on uh, on the Vancouver Canucks. Every Anytime we have her on, it, it's really interesting, uh, thought-provoking discussions about, you know, how the power play works, the PK works, and, you know, which line mates have success and, and how you get to that. And, and the breakdowns make so much sense, especially on the PK. And what you should kind of mention on the power play I find interesting, too. And, you know, the whole Brent Burns and Eric Carlson this season playing on the power play a lot together, I wonder if that's going to be somewhat of a template the Canucks look at next season with Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson. They tried it a little bit this year. But what ended up happening and didn't make a lot of sense to me was OEL would find himself on the half wall, and Quinn doesn't have as good a shot from the point. And not that you want to take Quinn away from playing the point too much, but do you keep the 1-3-1, or do you go back to more traditional two uh, defensemen kind of set on your power play and kind of have OEL as a guy that does the point shots more than that, more often than not, and then you get Quinn Hughes to maybe find the slot in open areas a bit more. And now maybe that takes away from some of his passing, but that's a question I have. Is there a world where the Canucks can have both those guys next season coexist on the same power play? Do you tinker too much with the power play? Well, it also depends on who's back next year, too. Right. That's the other big part of it. And assuming maybe one or two of those forwards are maybe not here anymore, then, yeah, you do have to have a different look at, uh, at the power play. And I wonder if it's a question, too, about getting more out of Oliver ekman Larson and his salary. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we all agree that there's more offense there. And I think Quinn can quarterback the power play from different areas. So it's about how it fits. But if they go with a uh, two-defenseman look on their top power play unit, they would certainly – like, I, I don't know like what other – outside of San Jose, outs, like – what other team in the league uses two defensemen on their top unit? Well, the one three one is essentially standard now, yeah. right? I mean, that's the standard umbrella that. So how do you zag when now. everyone else is zigging? Well, as long as you have success, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, like I, I don't really care about this being the trend in the league. It like how where do you have most of your success? And you are, I, I do think you make an interesting point about. Are we, are we overthinking things by getting multiple guys out of their positions to make one guy better at his position? Because then yeah. you're costing yourself in two or three other areas to try to get one guy up. And are you ahead if you do that? And that's going to be the balancing act that you have to figure out. And that, that's the most interesting thing. I keep trying to think, how do you make OEL and Quinn Hughes coexist on the power play? And the only way I can make think of it working is if Quinn plays more of the half wall. Or you go back to a traditional two-man two man set. But if you have two lefties as well on your points, it's not always ideal. 
it does take away from your bumper spot, so that's not yeah. going to be able to work as much unless you get to a point where you get Quinn to do what Eric Carlson does a lot, which Shana talked about, where he cheats and finds that soft spot in the middle of the ice, slot shot. So he ends up being the guy that jumps into the slot. But since his shot's not as prolific as a traditional bumper forward that can shoot the puck, do you get as much value in doing so? Even though Quinn might produce more, is he producing more than, than a good shooter in that spot? And, and to me, it's going to be a really, really interesting balancing act and evaluation process over the course of the offseason and training camp to try to figure out, okay, how do we get more out of OEL, and can we have both those guys on the power play? Yeah, it's, uh, and it's top 10 power play in the league right now, so why uh, would you think about changing it too much? But, of course, there's going to be a lot of juggling over the course of the off season, really interesting thought there on on Horvat as well. Just to to close out that conversation a little bit, we'll get more into the game uh, coming up after six o'clock. But his season, you have to look at it as he's taken a bit of a step and he has improved, improving shot quantity and also at the same time proving improving shot quality, at least from the areas that he's been mm-hmm. shooting. So that bodes well for him being able to uh, keep up some of the goal scoring that he's added this year, which is obviously Bo's biggest strength in his game is his shot and his goal scoring. He's a goal scoring center. Yeah, His greatest strength as a centerman, his best attribute as a centerman is scoring goals. He's good in the face-offs as well, but that's what he's good at. He's not a playmaker. Um, you know, he's not a two-way ace but he's been fine in that role, getting a lot better, obviously, this year. But he's a goal-scoring center. Like, if you try to say, okay, describe Bo Horvat's greatest strength, you'd say he's a goal-scoring center, wouldn't yeah. you? Yep. And this year, he's doing it. He's done it the best. Can he find those spots more and get the volume of the shots up? And, and here is where, okay, l- let's say that he is better at creating his own shot, which he has been this year. And if he continues that the next couple of years then yeah, maybe he won't shoot 16% next season if he plays 82. Maybe he won't be on pace with 34 goals or 35, but maybe he hits 28, 29, 30. Yeah. And that's still more than fine from a centerman. So even though some of it might be percentage-driven, is it percentage-driven to the point of it's going to prohibit him from being a 30-goal scorer, or are we talking about him maybe not getting back to being a 35-goal scorer potentially? Because that's the pace if you continue the, the run he was on, especially these, this past 26-27 game stretch. Would you have been surprised if he scored three or four more goals and got the 34-35? I don't think yeah. it would have surprised any of us. But if the percentages come down, he can probably still get to about 30 if he continues to get a shot off in those dangerous areas as well as he has this year. And... Uh... It's a big question for the off season, but um, a lot still to digest on Bo Horvat. But the big game tonight: Canucks and Dallas Stars. No Horvat in the lineup, but Matthew Highmore and Brock Besser are back. We'll dive more into the game conversation next on Canuck Central. Final segment: Canuck Central. As uh, we are. Awaiting puck drop here at Rogers Arena. Still uh, 90 minutes out. It's a 7.30 start. Canucks and Stars are uh, on the hometown hockey broadcast tonight on Sportsnet nationally. So uh, it's a big spot for the Vancouver Canucks. Obviously a must-win game. Not so much for the Dallas Stars. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. So that was kind of the, the interesting thing about tonight's game, Sat, is it was trending towards a, wow, this is going to be like a must-win game for both teams, but Dallas has won enough of their games in hand that, you know, they can very much lose tonight, and it's, you know, not going to uh, really put them in any kind of terrible position. They have a cushion. Yeah. <laughs> right? Believe it or not, they still have a cushion, and and that's that gives them... A little bit, of, a little bit of a leeway the rest of the yeah. way, and they got to ninety-one points already. So it's not that hard for them. Like even if they lose against Vancouver here, it doesn't really change their outlook considerably. No, they really have to drop a lot more. But if you start going through their differentials, they're not that impressive. I mean, they're they're a team that's finding ways to win, and I guess that's impressive. If you want to give them credit for it. But as much as we were talking about how to get to your results, I'm not overly impressed by how the stars are getting there. Uh, I know they're Bix's favorite hockey team, so um, <laughs> I've heard him wax poetic a few times uh, on on the People's Show. But you know they they do have um, a way of playing. 
right? Yeah, it's and very, it, it's yeah. it's kind of like we'll we'll uh, we'll ride our top line with Pavelski and Hints and uh, Robertson, as we just spoke about with Shayna Goldman, and everybody else. Let's hope they don't get crushed. They've got a good decor, mm-hmm. and uh, they've been getting decent goaltending. And it's it's one of those things they just they play to who they are. And Rick Bonus doesn't really try to make this team something that they aren't. And it's kind of just like, let's hope to not get scored on when our top line isn't on the ice. The best thing they do is control high junior scoring chances. That's the best thing they've done. And I think for the, the main reason for that is they don't allow a ton and their, their top line generates. So if you're able to saw off their top line... They're a team that you know you can beat, but they play a really strong overall team game. Like I don't dispute any of those things, but they're not a powerhouse by any means, no. and they're not a team that just because they're at ninety-one and probably will be a playoff team, that's going to be impossible to knock off. And come playoff time, I don't see how far they're going to be able to go because uh, ultimately one-line teams get snuffed out, and they don't generate enough offense outside of that top line to really be a threat. So if you can neutralize that, but they top weren't line, too dissimilar when they went to the final the other year. Yeah, but I mean, you, you catch lightning in a bottle and great get great goal. Tending, yeah, you make a bit of a run, you know, you get to that point. I mean, are you going to get that type of goaltending again? And yeah, I mean, we see teams make runs and get to the cup final, but are you going to win the cup final? And I mean, things have to align for them so well to get that far. I'm not sure their goaltending is going to be at that level this year either. So uh, a couple of things here for the Vancouver Canucks. Um, Bo Horvat out with the injury, as you mentioned uh, in the first hour of the show. You can go back and listen for, for more details, but unlikely... Even if the Canucks do make the playoffs, the bow will be uh, available for that opening round, at least not for the start of it, as you know, he took that shot against Arizona the other night. So his season, his regular season, is done. But they do get some reinforcements with Brock Besser and Matthew Highmore. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Besser one, he's playing at least to start the game with Garland and Pedersen. That's big because doesn't feel like the Canucks... I mean, crazy. I'm not saying they, they don't miss anything with Horvat out of the lineup, but you know the top six still feels like it has some danger to it, given that Besser is coming in with Horvat going out. Well, if we just assume for a moment that Alex Chason's going to remain, <laughs> you know, pretty hot, and he has right, yes, you know, that's I mean, a very big, uh, you know, it's a bit a of an assumption. <laughs> but let's just for kind a moment, of a big stipulation. Yes, let's just entertain that. I mean, he's got ten points in his last seven games, so give the man his due. Had a couple goals the other night, so I mean, the guy's playing well. He's on a bit of a streak here. So with him playing well, with Colson playing a lot better, and Miller being Miller, you feel like okay, that that that's a line that's going to be more than fine. Besser, Garland, and Pedersen, that sounds fine too. So as far as, okay, what, do you, what had to happen to replace Bo short term? Besser comes back, so you get a high-end guy coming in, or at least a higher-end guy coming in. Obviously not as hot or not playing as well as Bo had been playing, but still a guy that can score. And then you put Pedersen just down the middle because he hadn't been playing wing before. So you have an easy, natural guy to step in. So my question kind of comes down to the rest of the roster as well in a game like this because I think you're right the top six hey the makings are there for you to at least be able to saw off the Dallas Stars top six with Matthew Highmore back and Lockwood playing a bit better can you get something else from that third line that they don't get victimized and they can kind of help you out a little bit and take some of that pressure off the top six. Is that something that can happen with Highmore speed coming back in the lineup because against a team like the Dallas Stars the biggest thing, too, is your supporting cast guys not getting shelled yeah. and them not making mistakes that cost you. Well, I think it's a it's a stretch to think that that line with um, Highmore, Lockwood, and Lamico could replicate what Mott, Lamico, Highmore did. Yeah. Because those guys were taking on tough competition and controlling chances – Still at a pretty good rate, which it wasn't for a very long time, but in the small sample that they were together, I mean, it's about as good as you could ask for out of a defensive-minded bottom six checking line. Yeah, and Mott was really good at that rule, and Lockwood isn't quite at that level yet, and Highmore's been injured, but can can having Highmore back and having Lockwood with his pace with Lamico down the middle bring Lamical back to life a little bit. Because he hasn't been the same player ever since yeah. Mock got traded and Highmore was injured. 
can the speed on the wing help him get involved a bit more? Because when he, when they were able to get in on the forecheck, those two guys, and win the puck, or at least slow the play down, he would have enough time to catch up and get to his spots. And once he gets to the boards, he's good at winning those battles. He can work the cycle and get to the net. He can do a lot of things to help you out. But can he... Can you buy him enough time to get there? And it's not yeah. that he's a slow guy, but just not fast enough. So that extra half a second or a quarter of a second could help him just join the play and help you on the forecheck. So if they're able to get a bit more zone time just on the forecheck simply with that speed with Highmore and, and Lockwood, I wonder if we can get a little bit more out of Lamico here. He can provide a bit more value than what he's shown recently because you kind of need him. You yeah. kind of need, need to have a guy right now as we speak to do something for you on the third or fourth line. Because at times, you could throw Pedersen out there and have him run the third line for a few shifts. You could throw Horvat out there with somebody else and double shift him and get away with it. Well, now we don't have that option because Pedersen's playing down the middle. As much as, yeah, you can replace Horvat in the moment in, in these spots, you still need to have a third guy that can give you something. And I wonder if Lamico can do that with some speed on his wings. Because you kind of need that, too, in, in Horvat's absence. Yeah, if the Canucks are going to continue this run, they're going to need more out of their bottom six. You know, and I know Alex Chason is thought of as a bottom six, but right now he's he's a top six. Um, and doing it against Arizona right now is a lot different than doing it against a very defensively sound Dallas team. This is it's going to be a bit of a greasy game tonight. You know, you know what you're going to get out of Dallas, and nothing easy is what comes to mind. No, no, it's not going to be easy. And Christopher makes the point. Others make the point about, okay, what about the face-off circle? I'm not so worried about that at even strength. Situationally is where you worry about things like that. Like, especially, you know, late power play, uh, you know, is that where you need it on a PK, for instance? That's where you're going to kind of need it. But Pedersen, we talked about this before. He's taken, you know, he's had years where he's taken over 600 face-offs and he's been at 43%, and it hasn't really stopped him from spending most of his time in the offensive zone. Eventually, he's also so, gotten better. He has. He's Especially down the, the stretch, he has been getting better. But I don't think the face-off numbers will prevent you from generating offense. Situationally is where that becomes a bit of an issue. And Lamico's been better uh, in those spots, but he's going to have to be leaned on more on the PK, especially with those face-offs. Situationally, defensively, when Horvat can't, when uh, Miller's not out there, can he give you some of those? So, where I'm looking at for Lamico is also some of those tougher face-offs, some of those situational spots where Horvat would play. Can he fill those spots? Um, you might have to rely on him in those situations. Yeah, Miller at 53% right now. He is your most reliable face-off man. So that could be something to watch tonight. Expect for Miller to be out there for basically every big face-off. More or less. Right? I mean, uh, you don't really have too many other options. Now, Lamico has been respectable. He's won over 50% of his face-offs this year. So you're talking about a guy that can that that can do yeah. it. But I just kind of, the biggest issue with him is keeping up with the pace. And that's why Highmore, as much as he's, you know, he's, he's re- very much a bottom six player, but he has a trait that this team is lacking in that speed and a trait that I, I believe Lamico needs. And that's the other side of this. And with Highmore coming back, that could help offset some of the Horvat. Yeah. Absence. If Pedersen can play the middle, Besser can give you a little bit of production, and if if the speed Highmore and Lockwood can generate, can gets gets a bit more out of Lamico, then you can piece it together in Horvat's absence. So, the interesting wrinkle with Besser coming back into the lineup, he is not going right back onto power play one. Now he's normally been the net front guy on the top unit, as we know. Alex Chason is on. Uh, Quite the hot streak right now, so you're not moving him. The production has been there with him on power play one. It's hard to justify not keeping him there as the net front presence. Yeah. Um, But I do believe that can change as the game goes on. Yeah. Where it's kind of like the Hughes thing, not quite as much. Where, you know, oh, he missed a couple games. OEL was really good on the PK, on the power play, and the first kind of power play or two, you know, OEL went out there, but then quickly that, that switch happened. He went to Hughes again, replacing OEL in the first unit when they didn't have success. Now, Chase on may have a slightly longer leash with how good the first unit's been playing recently, but I also do wonder if they have a couple of pretty bad power plays that Besser doesn't find himself. So would back Besser in that take unit. off Chase on, or would he take off Pod Colson? Uh, because that's the interesting part here is that Pod Colson yeah. goes into Horvat's spot in the bumper. So if Besser is going, I believe Chason ends up ultimately being the guy that comes out as long, you know, not to not to cop out, but I, th- I think I think it essentially comes down to how they're playing. 
And if Podkolzin is having a game and playing decently, then I think they'll want to hold him in that spot. Because I think the biggest reason why you want Podkolzin there is that he's a left-hand shot in the bumper spot that sets up the one-two from with JT Miller. And that's something that they like to set up. Or or going down low, essentially hitting that triangle with Miller, Chase on, and with Podkolzin. And if he's a lefty there, you can receive that pass and shoot it better. So I I wonder if that's what they want to have in that spot. So that's where that replaces it. Whereas Chase on's a right-hand shot, and so is Besser. And that that more natural fit is on would be in front of the net. So it's more like for like switching than it is. That's the way I would necessarily see it. the the specific player. Yeah, and I think they want a right shot in front of the net. They yeah. want the left shot in the bumper. That's that's what I think part of this is. But I don't think they would have done so if they didn't feel confident in how put Colson's playing. And that they wouldn't be putting in the spot if they didn't feel like you could do it. Because naturally, you can still put Besser in the bumper spot. He's had success doing so. You don't set up the one-timer in the same uh, same spot. It would be more of trying to set him up alongside uh, Elias Patterson, which would kind of take away from Patterson's one-timer a bit. And that's, I think, why they like to have the lefty instead. Because yeah. then you have the one-timer... Uh, from uh, from the left side, and then you have the one-timer from the right side. Because teams have to decide what they're going to take away. Are they taking away yes. the bumper, or are they taking away Patterson? Exactly. So if you're kind of setting that up, I think that's what they're, that's part of the thinking and, and the way they're going about it. But I don't think they would have done so if Pitkolzin hadn't been coming along as well as he has and hadn't been playing as strong as he has recently. And one thing the guys keep talking about is how hard his shot is and how accurate his shot can be as well. So this is a real big opportunity for Vasily Pitkolzin to, to play in that bumper spot on the power play. And Besser, well, I think it really comes down to how Chase on that first unit fair the first few shifts. Uh, Night Street Mike, no one has a better sense of occasion than Miller. With bow out, look for Miller to rock it. And Christopher, good point on Pedersen and situational versus overall face-offs. Uh, it, it's, look, it's going to be a thing. Uh, JT Miller is going to take a lot of the face-offs. Yeah. A lot of the bigger ones, whether it's uh, end of game, offensive zone, uh, penalty kill in the defensive zone, that that opening defensive zone faceoff. Miller usually takes that opening draw, and he will continue to do that. Um, Pedersen will have to take like that. That might be one interesting thing: is you know, does Pedersen take the D zone draws on the penalty kill? which is not something he's done often or ever, really, because usually Horvat, uh, lately when they've played on the penalty kill, Horvat and Pedersen have played together. I, I think you'll see a lot of Pedersen playing with, uh, maybe with Miller, but him and Lamico. Again, I yeah. keep coming back with Lamico, but, you know, he's won almost 51% of his faceoffs. Yeah. That's respectable. Uh, it is uh, Canuck Central, Dan Riccio, and Satyar Shaw. One thing we mentioned with Shayna Goldman, uh, with Jason Robertson in town, he's... Up to uh, mid-30s on the goal chart. He's having an incredible year. Sophomore year for him, but was drafted in the second round in 2017. Obviously, if you were to redraft that, uh, it would go much differently. (laughs) Yes. But has it gotten to the point where Pedersen is no longer the slam-dunk best forward out of the 2017 draft? Well, if you're a Dallas Stars fan, you'll be making yeah. the argument for Jason Robertson. And Robertson's been terrific, and he's fantastic. And, yeah, the gap is obviously closed. And I still like Pedersen's overall play better, too, because you look at, you know, Robertson has been the last couple of years. Pedersen's been coming in and doing this since he was a 19-year-old yeah. at, at the NHL level. So, But it also does kind of show that... Pedersen, because he hasn't really taken a massive leap since the second season, you know, obviously this past, last season, he only played 26 games and was injured. This year, bad start. Now he's playing a lot better. That he's allowed others to come back into the discussion. That right now, just as you mentioned, posing the question is absolutely fair. Someone can easily craft an argument right now for Jason Roberts and point to the numbers and say, hey, you can't dispute the numbers, but it's two seasons versus now four. So, you know, I think overall, I still like Pedersen's talent better than Robertson. But it also underscores the need for Pedersen next season to take another step. That for him to still be considered the head and shoulders best forward come to come out of the 2017 draft, he still has to get better. And that was always the projection with him. It was, hey, he's not the finished product in his first year and his second season. But what makes us so excited about his future and long-term prospects is how much better he can get and how high that ceiling is and how incrementally he'll get there over the next few years. Well... As much as he's been on the PK, and you can craft the argument that this stretch has been his best stretch, 
I don't think because he's had a good you know, 30-game or 40-game stretch, we can say he's taken a big step this season. Yes, I think he's been better on the PK. Yes, I think aspects of his game have improved. But for him to take a leap, he's got to do it for a full year. And that's what I want to see from him next season. And until he takes a big leap next year, people are going to be you know, pondering whether Robertson's the better forward or how many other players in that draft you would now prefer to take over Elias Pettersson. Uh, Robertson with 116 points in 121 games. Pretty impressive. Has the best points per game in the draft outside of Kale McCarr. Uh, the other player who's really uh, taken a big step in that draft is, is Robert Thomas. And also playing the center of the ice, mm-hmm. as uh, Shane had just talked about, uh, could be one of the better passers in the league. And the numbers show it. 120 assists for his career to just 40 goals for Rob Thomas. Yeah, and Nico Heeshear, who was taken first in that draft, as far as forwards go, I mean, he was the first overall pick. No slouch. No slouch, but he's not an elite point producer. He's becoming a good two-way centerman that has speed and can do a lot of different things for you. So it comes down to how you evaluate his talent. But he may project to be more of a second-line guy than a first-line guy. Whereas Pedersen is a surefire first-line player. So is Jason Robertson. Robert Thomas is certainly trending in that direction. Now, is Robert Thomas the best playmaker to come out of that draft? Is that an argument that you want to make? I think that's a fair one. But Pedersen and Robert Thomas have played pretty similar amount of games. 238 for Pedersen, 235 for Robert Thomas. Pedersen has 100 and... um, 21 assists, and Jason Robertson has 100, uh, sorry, uh, Robert Thomas has yeah. 120 assists. So what I think that this comes down to is Pedersen still has the highest ceiling. You know, we're just waiting yep. for him to take that next step. Well, he's got to attain it, yeah. you know, and it, it, so right now he's earning a 7 million the way yeah. he's playing. Over the course of the season, you got to do this full year to be worth a 7. But the discussions with him were, oh, if he's good, he's a 9, $10 million player, $11 million player. Well, for you to be in that, you know, discussion as a player you got to do more than we've done in the second half of the season. you got to take that big step forward. Until he does that, then the door is going to be open here for somebody else not named Pedersen to put themselves in that discussion. And, you know, I'm excited for next year because I think he will be a lot better than what he's been this year. And if he is, we'll start to really see his true value and what he can do. And if he can become that difference-making player, it, or even more so than he is right now, I think it's going to start reimagining what this roster can do in a couple of years. Uh, he has been such a huge part of the Canucks getting back into the race and making it a conversation to game 76. But, yeah, you'd almost prefer um, a more gradual season <laughs> or like a more you know consistent season where he was a ghost for the first half almost – to now being like, oh my God, who is this guy? He's like, he's back, Pedersen, finally. Um, to the tune of, you know, 110 point pace. He'd pre- like, you know, we all know how averages work. You knew he was going to find it at some point, given where he'd been for the rest of his career. Um, but it's just been way too lopsided in how it's played yeah. out and played a huge factor into why the Canucks were so poor at the start of the season. Yeah, and, and you know we're sitting here talking about forwards in the draft yeah. uh, from the 2017 draft. I mean, there's no question that the best player in that draft right now is Kale McCarr. I think Kale McCarr, Heiskanen go one two if you were to redraft. Probably, and that's I don't think that would be a stretch to suggest. Yeah. And the question comes out to who's number three. But those are the two players. And for a while, it was who's the better one, McCarr or Pedersen. And those guys had kept progressing, and Pedersen hasn't taken that leap yet. He's been great the second half, but for him to now start challenging McCarr and Heiskanen, another step needs to be taken. We'll dive more into it. Pedersen needs a big one tonight. Canucks and Stars pregame next on Sportsnet 650.